Ford and GM earnings will give an early look at the impact of the UAW strike. And Mayor Johnson and the Chicago Police Department Union have reached a contract deal. I'll talk about it and its potential impact on the city's $16.6 billion budget proposal with Crane's reporter Justin Lawrence. Uh, essentially, they accommodated that they were working on a contract with the union and knew that if they reached an agreement, they would have to pay some extra costs next year. But, you know, I'm told I don't think all of that is in there. So we're, we're still working to try to find out exactly how much it'll increase the budget. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Tuesday, October 24th. You shouldn't have to explain to your bank why your business matters. Wintrust Commercial Banking doesn't rely on clients to educate them. They have dedicated teams of Chicagoland-based experts specializing in a range of industries, allowing them to offer customized solutions. Built in the area for the area, Wintrust offers the tools and support your business needs to thrive in Chicago. Be your bank's top priority at Wintrust Commercial Banking. Meet your future banker at Wintrust.com slash banker. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation Banks, FDIC slash EHL. Mayor Brandon Johnson and the Chicago Police Department Union have reached a contract deal. Here to talk about it, Crane's reporter, Justin Lawrence. Welcome back. Always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Hey, Amy. Twice in a week. I know, right? Killing it. Okay, so um, talk to me about the uh, the specifics of this deal and and what it means for, for the city and for the police department. It kind of goes back to 2021 under former Mayor Lori Lightfoot. She signed a, a deal that was mostly uh, like an economic deal. It, it provided back pay and future raises to FOP Lodge 7. That's the Fraternal Order of Police. That's the largest police union in the in the city, mostly rank and file uh, officers. So it provided back pay and 2.5% annual raises through 2025, but it, it left a lot of things off the table uh, or they didn't reach agreement on a couple other things. So those were going through the arbitration process this year. It took a while to get there, but they were going through arbitration and the city was losing essentially. The, the arbitrator was siding with the FOP, so it brought everybody back to the table. So what they what they agreed to is those two and a half percent raises that Whitefoot had agreed to, they're they're going to double that to five percent in twenty four in twenty twenty five, and then they extended the life of that financial deal through twenty twenty seven. Those those extra years are going to be essentially cola, you know, cost of living increases. We don't know exactly what they are right now, and then there's some other things in the deal. Uh, Everybody will get a, every officer, or at least in the union, will get a $2,500 bonus next year. Um, there's some, you know, some tweaks around how and when officers can be assigned to the CTA and how and when uh, when officers reach certain level, uh, you know, get certifications, they'll get bonuses as well. So it's mostly a financial deal, but it does, you know, close out all the all the outstanding issues with the union and the city and and provides at least contractually labor peace through 2027. And so what does that do to Johnson's 16.6 billion dollar budget proposal? It will increase it. I've been trying to find out all day exactly how much it increases it. So the city uh, essentially they accommodated that they were they were working on a contract with the union and 
knew that they would, if they reach an agreement, they would have to pay some extra costs next year. But, you know, I'm told, I don't think all of that is in there. So even that $2,500 bonus, you know, that likely is about an $8 million uh, payment roughly. And then that extra two and a half percent, if they didn't account for all of that, um, that could be much more than that. But we're, we're still working to try to find out exactly how much it'll increase the budget. And then in this agreement, there, there are pieces of it that aren't financial. In particular, there's stuff around consent decree. And then there's stuff in there about how police misconduct complaints are handled. Talk to me about that. So there's kind of two tracks here. I mean, previously, the, the city wasn't allowed to investigate a lot of anonymous complaints. There are certain standards, but anonymous complaints that came in, they weren't allowed to investigate that. It had to have a person identified making the complaint against the officers. So that was rectified in 2021. Other police accountability measures were as well. And through this contract, essentially everything that the federal consent decree that's governing reform of the department, everything that um, as part of that consent decree is handled in a the union agreement has now been, I guess, brought in line with the consent decree is the easiest way to say it, except for this one issue um, that's actually not going to be resolved through this. It, it will have to be a separate track through the city council. And that is, uh, so the, that arbitrator that I mentioned before this summer ruled that or sided with the union and that um, for like, kind of the most egregious police uh, misconduct cases or allegations where um, the officer was facing termination from the department. That would usually be handled and adjudicated by the Chicago Police Board, which is, um, you know, full of mayoral or appointees. Um, so it was tweaked. So they would instead be able to request a, an independent arbitrator hear those cases. And the arbitrator this summer um, agreed with that position. Uh, the city is, is opposing that. It requires city council approval. Um, and that would be a real fight. I mean, there's there's members of the city council who think it's kind of a step back in police accountability. And I, you know, this is almost me thinking out loud. But if if they're going to agree to this contract that provides a lot of financial benefits to the union, it, I could see them the city council digging in their feet and saying we're not going to agree to this this issue that we think sets back reform just as we're trying to you know, increase accountability in the city. And you mentioned um, CTA and assigning officers to CTA. Talk to me about that and unpack that a bit, if you would. Yeah, that was one of those things that, like, I, I really um, didn't know. And, and we all wondered why why the CPD wasn't doing more on the CTA. But I, I guess in the current contract, the superintendent and the leaders of the department were only able to assign 20% of those detailed to the CTA. And then the the rest of it, 80% was kind of done by some sort of seniority ranking. So, uh, you know, bidding process where seniority reigned. And, you know, the the people I spoke to said that kind of led to officers who, who maybe you didn't want on the CTA, the older officers who are less uh, willing maybe to be engaged and, and chase people down or really hustle about the, the CTA. So the, the city was was trying to fix that, and maybe they did. The new contract, CPD will be able to assign 50% of the detail while the union will still have, it'll still be done by seniority for the other 
And then there's the parental leave policy issue, which is uh, which is also kind of an interesting one. This issue kind of arose with it, and the head of FOP was sort of claiming this double standard exists. Explain that. Yeah, maybe I maybe I should have mentioned uh, the president, right? FOP president John Cotanzari's uh, quite a controversial figure. He's very outspoken. He, he opposed Mayor Lori Lightfoot's vaccine mandate for officers. He, he previously had to apologize for kind of excusing the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. And and he himself resigned from the department um, when he was facing termination for insubordination and some social media posts. So, you know, he's also, he, he well, before he was mayor, he was no fan of current mayor Brandon Johnson. He, uh, you know, he supported his opponent and kind of predicted that officers would leave the force in droves if Johnson was elected. So, that's just to say that when Johnson expanded parental leave for the uh, teachers and the Chicago Teachers Union where he used to work, I forget the exact details of how much uh, extra leave they got, but they got it and they they did it without going through the bargaining process. It was just kind of the boss giving giving a new benefit to the employees. And Cotton Czar criticized that and said it's a double standard. And, and if the CTU gets it, the FOP wants it as well. Um, the caveat to that is that the you know police officers already have much more time off than than teachers but as part of this agreement uh, essentially the FOP will no longer challenge that in arbitration uh, they're not trying to expand their parental leave policy they'll just leave that you know maybe they'll try to negotiate it in 2027 but it will no longer be an issue for the next few years Okay, so the the deal has been reached, and we ha- have to kind of wait and see how it how it impacts the budget. Um, what are the next steps here, and what will you be most interested to watch? I should say the the first next step is the city council has to approve it, and the FOP membership has to approve it. It it would be remarkable if either side said no. Um, but then after that, I mean, it's you know the deal is in place, so I'm looking towards. You know, this kind of sets the stage for for upcoming negotiations with other unions. The the firefighters union is is up for a deal, and they're not going to want anything less than what the you know the police got. And and then the big one that's coming down the line is is obviously the a new deal for the Chicago Teachers Union. And they, you know, Brandon Johnson was a union organizer, and uh, they spent a lot to help get him elected and campaign for him. And they're certainly not going to want anything less than what they think they deserve and certainly not less than what the police union just got. That, that part will be very interesting given, given the mayor's history with that organization. So what is the timeline for the approval process uh, and the acceptance of the contract? You know, I think the union side will be relatively quick. They'll kind of educate their members on what's in the deal and, and why they signed or why they agreed to it. And I think that will happen relatively soon. The city council you know, they this just happened. They haven't scheduled a vote on it. Uh, I assume that they'll want to do it either as part of the budget process or before the budget votes take place, which are tentatively scheduled for November 15th. So, you know, the city council will probably be taking this up within the next month. Sounds good. All right. Well, I'm sure lots of things, lots of other budget things will come up between now and then, and we, ha- we will have plenty, plenty to discuss. But thanks so much for swinging by today. Yeah, there's a huge budget, so I'm sure there's much more to talk about. <laughs> we'll have to like break it out into pieces so we don't overwhelm you <laughs> with too much. Yeah, I will. I will just. I'll leave. I'll leave everyone with this. Today is the streets and sanitation budget hearing, which is 
a very fun one to listen to. It's mostly about uh, rats and garbage juice and <laughs> all the all the issues that that our garbage collectors deal with and pick up and all the issues that aldermen hear from their constituents. So it's, um, mm. you know, next year, I think maybe you should come do a, like a live podcast of Streets and Sanitation Day. I mean, if they would have me, I would absolutely do that. <laughs> <laughs> I bet they would. Coming up, a developer is set to begin a 72-story apartment tower on the Chicago Spire site. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Thanks for listening to Crane's Daily Gist. Remember, we provide a daily news brief that drops right in your inbox. It's our newsletter called The Crane's Morning 10. They're the 10 stories that will fuel a smarter workday. To subscribe, visit chicagobusiness.com slash morning 10. This is The Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Crane's sister publication, Automotive News, reported that the United Auto Workers strike, which has now entered its sixth week, is taking a toll on Detroit's big three automakers, the extent of which set to be revealed by Ford and General Motors in their upcoming third quarter results. Stellantis, formerly known as Fiat Chrysler, has already made significant adjustments due to the strike. They've withdrawn from various industry events, including the CES Technology Expo, as they implement countermeasures to mitigate financial losses and transition into a mobility tech company. GM has also postponed an Investor Day event focusing on UAW negotiations instead. Automotive News pointed out that the strike's uncertainty makes it challenging for GM to provide forward-looking business expectations, particularly concerning its electrification strategy and software plans for vehicles. Automotive News also pointed out that the strike has not only impacted assembly plants, but also resulted in temporary layoffs at other facilities, raising concerns among automakers about the potential impact on multiple product lines. Automotive News also noted that although the strike started two weeks before the end of the third quarter, the real financial hit is predicted to be in the fourth quarter. Analysts anticipate ongoing repercussions into 2024, even if an agreement is reached in the coming weeks. GM, which reports its third quarter results on Tuesday, this month obtained a $6 billion line of credit to ensure flexibility in operations. That followed Ford's August move to add a $4 billion credit line. GM said the strike cost the company $200 million through September 30th. In 2019, GM said the UAW's 40-day strike at the time cost $3.6 billion in total. Its earnings report on Tuesday would mark the 40th day of this year's strike, although it involves significantly fewer GM workers and plants than in 2019. Ford is expected to report its third quarter results on Thursday, October 26th, while Stellantis is scheduled to release third quarter shipments and revenue on October 31st. Automotive News also reported that despite the strike, GM and Ford could both exceed analysts' third quarter expectations, in part because of strong pricing, though neither company is likely to raise full-year guidance again. That according to a research note last week from Deutsche Bank. Crane's John Pletz reported that research efforts led by the University of Chicago and University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign are in the running for federal grants of $40 million to $70 million each, the finalists chosen from hundreds of applicants. 
a quantum computing and communications project led by U of C's Chicago Quantum Exchange called The Block and a fermentation and agriculture biomanufacturing effort led by U of I called IFAB are among 31 regional tech hubs across the nation designated by the U.S. Department of Commerce. Pletz noted that the Tech Hub initiative is part of the $53 billion Chips in Science Act, one of several massive federal research funding programs fueled by a wave of legislation during the first two years of the Biden administration, such as the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and the Inflation Reduction Act. Pletz also noted in reporting that the Illinois universities and its national labs, Argonne and Fermi, are making a concerted effort to get a piece of what's seen as a once-in-a-generation trove of funding to develop next-generation technologies. The state of Illinois is part of a Midwest consortium that will share $1 billion to develop the supply chain for hydrogen-powered vehicles. The federal government is investing billions in next-generation technologies to give the U.S. an economic competitive advantage in areas like semiconductors, renewable energy, and electric vehicles. Pletz reported that quantum computing, like semiconductor technology, is viewed as a massive commercial opportunity as well as a national security issue. And Chicago has become an early leader in quantum computing through the U of C-led Chicago Quantum Exchange, a consortium of academic and corporate partners. Argonne and Fermi got an early leg up when each received $115 million for quantum research from the U.S. Department of Energy. And as Pletz also reported, the University of Illinois was named a Tech Hub finalist for its agriculture technology proposal to develop fermentation technologies to convert plant-based feedstocks into food ingredients, building block chemicals, fuels, and other materials. The proposal involves Champagne and Decatur, which is home to commercial agriculture giant ADM. After a years-long search for the right Fulton Market District space, Gibson's Restaurant Group is well on its way to opening a new space in the neighborhood. Crane's Jack Grieve reported that the heavyweight Chicago restaurant operator signed a 15,000-square-foot ground-floor lease at 919 West Fulton Street. The restaurant will be the group's 13th in the Chicago area. Grieve noted in reporting that Gibson's will operate on the ground floor of a 400,000-square-foot, 11-story office building that the building's owner, Fulton Street, expects to be ready in early 2025. The restaurant will likely open later that year or early in 2026, according to Fulton Street's CEO. Gibson's chairman, Steve Lombardo III, said in a statement announcing the plans, quote, For years, we were looking for the right opportunity to expand our brand into Fulton Market, and after an exhaustive search, we have found the perfect location and partner. Grieve noted that the specific vision for the restaurant has yet to be decided. Gibson's owns or operates more than a dozen restaurants offering different types of cuisine, including Gibson's Bar and Steakhouse on Rush Street, Hugo's Frog Bar and Fish House, Lux Bar, Quartino Ristorante and Wine Bar, and Gibson's Italia. A Dom's Kitchen and Market store was originally planned to operate alongside Gibson's, but the Fulton Street CEO has said that deal has since fallen through. And Grieve also noted that Gibson's is just the latest in a flock of restaurants headed to Fulton Market. Known since the 1990s for its so-called Restaurant Row on Randolph Street, the area keeps adding restaurants as its development boom continues. Chicago restaurant groups including Dynamic Hospitality and Lettuce Entertain You Enterprises have also recently expanded in the neighborhood.
Crane's Danny Ecker reported that Related Midwest plans to break ground by the end of the year on the first of two residential skyscrapers on the Chicago Spire site. A long-awaited step forward for a project that stands to dramatically change the city's lakefront skyline. During a recent virtual meeting with Streeterville residents, the developer disclosed plans to start work in about six weeks on a 72-story apartment tower at 400 North Lakeshore Drive, according to a person who attended the October 17th meeting and who spoke with Cranes. The 635-unit tower would be on the northern portion of the site, which gained notoriety over the past 15 years as a massive hole in the ground left behind from a failed plan for the 150-story Chicago Spire, which would have been the Western Hemisphere's tallest tower. Ecker noted that the eminent groundbreaking suggests that Related Midwest is close to securing financing for the first phase of its project. Related Midwest executives didn't confirm financing details, but said they expect the tower to be completed by the third quarter of 2027. Ecker noted that Related Midwest also said that it's committed $10 million in funding for DuSable Park across Lakeshore Drive from the site, which it aims to finish with the completion of the first tower. A second, shorter tower with 465 units along the southern portion of the Spire site would be part of a second phase of the project, though Ecker noted that the developer told Streeterville residents that the timing of that building would be subject to market conditions. Ecker also noted in reporting that related Midwest's pending step forward on the project comes more than five years after it unveiled plans for a $1 billion two-tower project on the site that included a hotel and condos, in addition to apartments. The developer eventually tweaked its vision to make it all residential and shared its proposal with Streeterville residents just days before the COVID-19 pandemic was declared, saying at the time that it aimed to break ground in 2021. The city council approved the planned development in June of 2020. The first tower in the Lakeshore Drive project is slated to include 127 affordable units in order to take advantage of state tax incentives tied to affordable housing and new developments, according to Related Midwest. Ecker also noted that the proposed buildings were designed by the Chicago office of Skidmore, Owings and Merrill, along with architect David Childs. That's Crane's Daily just for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's reporter, Justin Lawrence. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.